The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, in your word you told us of a time when Jesus had a conversation with a woman. And while they briefly debated where and in what forms one should worship you, he said we are to worship you in spirit and in truth. That's so hard for us, Lord. We are people prone to make things tangible and physical and concrete prone to twist things, to form half-truths, call them whole truths. We struggle with the in spirit and in truth. Lord, it's still true. And so for, for that, Lord, I ask You to come and into this Your people, send Your Spirit in power to make us different, to grow us and strengthen us and sanctify us in this area. Make us worshipers of you in spirit and in truth. Give us some vision of you, Lord. Shows you grand, high and exalted and transcendent. It shows us the truth about you, about who you really are. Give us some vision of that. And make us genuine worshipers of you. Father, we need your Spirit for that, so send Him to do that. And Lord, I know there are some here today who don't know you, perhaps some who think they do, but don't, in fact. Make them aware of that. Open their eyes. Show them yourself in truth. Draw them in spirit. Help us, Father, Son, and Spirit. Open up your Word here. Make it clear. Give clarity to my stumbling words and and give spirit power to this written word that it would move into us and change us, your people, and therefore this church to make it more of what you would want it to be. Lord, what I pray is that you would deal with your people in grace, that you would be at work here, and that as a result you would be highly honored as you are jealous for and as you deserve. Bring that to pass, I pray, for the glory of Christ and for the good of your people. Amen. There's an old line that runs, God made man in his own image, and then man went and returned him the favor. You think that through. It's originally attributed to a non-Christian cynic who was intending to insult Christianity, from his perspective, it was a man-made religion. He says that we say God made us, and then we go around and we make God. That's what he was intending. But the irony of it is that if you remove his original intent, the statement still actually is true. We human beings are remarkably persistent in our recreation of God, continually fashioning him to match what fits our perception of what he should be like and how he should act. A perception that often, if we're honest, if we look closely, bears an uncanny resemblance to the person or the culture doing the fashioning at the moment. 
We are habitual God-makers. We make God to match us. And that's what the second commandment is going to be about this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 5. God forbids this practice of making a God that matches an image that we have in our minds. And that's a good thing that he forbids it. Not only because it dishonors him, but also because if you think about this, if there's a real God and we make up another God and follow after that one and bow down to that one, what we're doing is walking away from the real God and all that he might be for us. So it's good that God forbids this and wants to hold us to him. Our passage is going to address that today, the second commandment. This is chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Last week we began with the introduction to the Ten Commandments and with the first commandment. What we saw there was a context-setting statement and then the first commandment that forbid that we have any other gods before him. And picking up with that and developing it in a slightly different way is the second commandment. We're going to be focusing on verses 8 through 10, but to set the context, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 as well. So follow along with me, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's the passage for today. The text has two parts. It has the commandment, and then it has a supporting reason or argument for the commandment. But before we get to that, we have to be sure we understand what the commandment's actually saying. Because obviously on the surface, it's talking about some form of idolatry. Talking about fashioning or, or creating images. But God's addressing this issue of idolatry from a, a very particular angle. He had just forbid in the first commandment that we should have no other gods before him. So right there, he's already marking out and, and forbidding idolatry per se. You can't have me and this God and this God and this God. No, it's only one God. And so he's not saying exactly that same thing in the second commandment. It's slightly different. He's working on a different idea. Rather than the question of who should you worship, here he's getting after, how should you worship the Lord? And the answer is, don't make any image or any form Or bow down to it and serve it because those images and forms are misrepresentations of me. Don't do that. He's addressing the practice of offering up worship to Yahweh, that's the Lord, in a tangible, concrete image. The kind of thing that Israel did with the incident of the golden calf. You might recall that incident. It's in Exodus 32. You can read about it there. Right after God gave them audibly the Ten Commandments, and Moses stayed on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, to actually receive them and some other instruction, he was gone for a while, and the people are down in the valley, and they get bored, and they lose heart, and they say to Aaron, make us a God, Aaron. 
the high priest. And so they begin to interact, and what do you know? They make a huge golden statue of a calf. And they bow down to it, and they worship it. You can read about the, all the details there, but they say to it, they look at this great big calf and say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It's the Lord had done. And so it, it might appear right away that they're departing from the Lord. They're leaving Yahweh over here, and they're going to say, ah, instead we're going to worship this golden calf, one or the other. It's not actually that, though. If you keep reading, you see that Joshua sees what they've done. The text continues. I mean, Aaron sees what they've done. And he built an altar before the golden calf and said, tomorrow we will celebrate a feast to Yahweh. He hasn't left the Lord. He says, we're going to celebrate a feast to the Lord. And so he builds an altar right in front of the golden calf. And the next day, they celebrate the feast of the Lord by offering burnt offerings and sacrifices that God had already told them to do earlier in the book of Exodus. They put them on the altar in a feast of the Lord in front of the golden calf. They are worshiping the Lord in the calf. This is your God that brought you out of Egypt. You see the issue there? The mixing of Yahweh with an image. That's the kind of thing he's forbidding. Don't make any images of me. Which would have been extremely odd in that day. The historical research is not entirely clear, but it seems that this would have made Israel the only people in the entire region that did not have a physical, tangible God. Something they could look at and touch would have made them oddballs, would have opened them up to much criticism and much temptation. You can imagine the, the conversation. Here's our great God. Where's yours? Oh, we don't have one. It's just in our minds. Sure. You, you can see the ridicule there. This great, big, massive statue of, of opulence and wealth versus nothing. That's what the Lord wants, though. He's very clear, do not make any images. Well, wouldn't it be okay, though, God, wouldn't it be okay if we, if we make this golden calf, but we're really clear that it's still Yahweh? No, it wouldn't be. Because of, we'll get to this a little more later, because of what happens in the heart as soon as you make something concrete, he forbids it. And then in verses 9 and 10, he gives them a little bit of reason as to why. Yeah, persuade them or to encourage them. He continues on, middle of verse 9, for, don't do this, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's jealous for His own glory to be maintained. Now, we've talked about this before, but jealousy, usually, in our minds, amongst people, jealousy is wrong. What is jealousy? It's, it's the looking at some other situation, another person, another, another opportunity, another bag of resources, looking at what somebody else has and wanting it for myself. There's a jealousy of, uh, you have something, I want it. Oftentimes, most of the time in human relationships, that's wrong. But not always, if you think particularly of a marriage relationship, it is right that you be jealous for the affection of your spouse if you're married. It is right that you not want your spouse to love you and everybody else on the block equally. You should be jealous for that. It's a good thing. Wrong if you don't have it. 
So even in human situations, jealousy can sometimes be right. And in God's situation, it is necessary. He cannot allow other things to rise above him in importance and in affection in our hearts. He can't allow that. Because he knows I am the best thing. I should be most honored. And he's jealous that he have that place in the hearts of his people. And so he reminds them of that. I am a jealous God. I will not share my glory with anything else. No image of me. Nothing. And in fact, if that happens, I will visit the iniquity. Uh, that is, I will visit the punishment of the sin onto the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He calls this kind of practice of making an image and offering ourselves to it hatred of Him. Again, think about it. If here's God and I make something else, I'm saying, no thank you, and moving over here. Hatred, rejection of Him. And He will meet that kind of behavior by pouring out the iniquity, the punishment for the sin, onto the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? And is that fair? Well, think about what third and fourth generation is. It's the maximum of what I'll call generational overlap. And remember the culture of the day. Families would have lived together, if not in the very same tent or building, in, in a cluster. And they would have been a family unit, and the oldest living male is in charge. And about as big as a family is going to get are three or four generations. So what he's saying is your family unit is going to receive poured out on it the punishment for the sin of the father. If you look at what the punishments would be, you could glance ahead to the end of Deuteronomy and see the blessings and the curses section. It's obvious why that would be. If you're talking about a curse that is something about a famine or the diminishing of your crops or your flocks, a drought, it's going to affect the whole unit. If my flocks are mixed in with my father's and my grandfather's flocks and they have a disease, they're all going to get a disease. If the crops fail, they're my crops too. God's giving a strong warning here. You, Father, have an effect on your family line. And if you turn away from me and make an idol, it will affect everybody in your family line when I act in discipline on you. But, conversely, God is much more strongly inclined to bless because He'll pour out iniquity on the third or fourth generation, but He will show steadfast love to the thousandth generation, metaphorically speaking. On down through a thousand generations, I will bless those who follow me, who love me and keep my commandments. Those are the choices before you. That's what's tied to this, this question of whether or not you will image me, blessing or cursing, on your family or on your families, 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 families. Make your choice, but realize that you live in a community, in a family, it's going to affect far more than just you. That's the text for the day, the second commandment. I'm going to drill into this 8, 9, and 10 a little bit more to make two observations, one of them related to the commandment itself and one of them related to the supporting reasoning that follows. 
start with the commandment itself. I want to summarize this commandment in the following sentence. Putting it as an exhortation to us. Take care. Take care that you not confine God as you attempt to worship Him. Take care, be careful, not to confine or restrict or limit or control Him even while you're attempting to exalt Him in worship. That's what the commandment's actually getting at. To see that, we need to approach it with verse 6 in mind. Verse 6 is is the head of the whole law, and it's the head of every single piece of the law, too. So verse 6 is the head of the second commandment as well, where he says, I am the Lord. I am the the ever-present, always reigning one. There was never a time that I came into being. I am always present. I made everything that is. It's mine. I'm in it now, sustaining it, and I will one day roll it all up and call it all to account before me. I am the Lord, the one who delivered you. I am over you and over everything else, so do not dare make an image of me. How do those things fit together? How does that that connect? Because that's what the second commandment says. It, the, the context of verse 6, I am the Lord, so don't make any image. How does that relate? Like this. And this is important to understand if we're going to be able to apply this to our lives. Here's how those things connect. We're forbidding from attempting to worship the sovereign, think of who he is, the sovereign, eternal, transcendent, holy, Righteous, glorious, loving Lord by making a little statue of Him with my own hand and my own knife with a piece of wood out of my backyard. I'm forbidden from doing that because of what inevitably, probably immediately happens as soon as I do. I create a lie by my own power. Think of what happened with the golden calf. Why do they make a golden calf? Can you imagine a huge golden calf when the sun hits it? I mean, it would blind you and shine. And it's incredibly valuable. They gave up tons of gold to melt it down and make this thing. And a calf of that size especially is power. It's strength. So in some way, they got a little bit of him right. He is glorious. He is the greatest treasure we have. He is full of might, but it's a lie. Because even the glory represented right there is not the glory that moves into the human heart and sustains it day after day after day after day for years. And it's not the kind of strength that deals with the sin problem that severs me from control of my sin nature. And it says nothing about grace. Calves aren't gracious. It says nothing about wisdom. Calves are not wise. They know very little. They do not love. They show no compassion or mercy. 
as soon as in my mind I conceived, I know what I'll do, I'll make a golden calf. I created a lie. And when I made it with my own hands, I put it underneath my own control. I can modify it as I like, put it where I will, and destroy it if I get tired of it. And when I put a concrete thing in front of my eyes, and this has happened in civilizations across the map, and it happened in Israel, as soon as I put a concrete thing in front of my eyes, inevitably, that becomes the thing I worship. That becomes the place where I worship. And it invites me to develop formulas by which I worship. Why else would I make it and put it in a location other than if I'm going to go there to worship? Which means I won't go over there to worship. I'm telling a lie about him as soon as I make a statue. That's why he forbids it. As soon as we say, this is your God right here, total lie. Domesticated him. Fabricated a a half-truth as if it is a whole truth. God's against that. I must take care, and you must take care to not confine God in the ways that you conceive of Him or confine Him under your own authority even as you attempt to worship Him. Well, thank goodness we don't do that anymore. I mean, look around, this is a gym. I mean, there aren't any gold statues in here. I have, I have been in a, in a um, I guess you'd call it a chapel, an, an Eastern Orthodox chapel, more gold and silver than most jewelry stores. Images and statues and icons everywhere. Candles burning. It, it was remarkable and clearly different than here. So I guess it's nice to know what the second commandment is getting at. Let's move on to the third, though. Something that really matters. Well, obviously we can't move on that quickly. And I've got to be honest, I have, I have struggled because I still have some time. <laughs> I, have, I have struggled to figure out, how do I apply this to our church and to me? I mean, what it's saying is clear to me. But what does it actually say to us and to me? And I think the key is, if, if you look at just the carving of the images, and there are places in our modern world, as I mentioned, there are places in our modern world and there are certain religions in our modern world in which the very surface has direct impact. They would claim to be worshipers of the God of the Bible through images and icons galore. It has direct impact, but... Being that we're not there, what does this mean to to us? And I think the key is, as I said, understanding what's beneath it. The controlling and the manipulation. The desire to, to nail God down. That's what begins to hit home for me. I don't do that physically. We don't do that. In our culture, in our tradition, we don't do that physically. But we do do it mentally. We use language and we nail God down and draw the parameters of what God looks like and how He must act 
just as cleanly and probably even a little more effectively than those who make pictures and statues. Here's what I mean. Let me take a clear example from the New Testament. The statement, God is love. Is that true? Absolutely. Praise God, it's true. It's in the Bible. God is love. But you don't have to go very far at all to find a whole bunch of people in this country and a whole bunch of people who claim to be Christians for whom, apparently, that is the only statement in the Bible about God. And all that is necessary to definitively prove that God is perfectly fine with me as I am and will never send anybody to hell, you know that's true. God is love, therefore everything is fine. That's an idol. That is an attempt to profess worship of the God of the Bible drawn like this, as only God is love. Entirely skipping some of the other attributes that need to be brought into the equation. Let me come a little closer to home, though, because probably most of us are aware of that and are appalled by it, but can still dodge that one. I have had frequent conversations with Christians that touch on difficult doctrines or call for difficult steps of obedience. And very often, perplexingly often, the problem arises, and here's how it goes. I'll explain it through a story that a, a professor told me one time. A professor was doing this sort of thing. I've, I've been tempted to do this, but I haven't had the courage to. He was interacting with, with a professing Christian about a difficult doctrine, and the guy was not liking what he was hearing. And so what he did was the guy picked up his own Bible and began to flip through and pull out a bunch of verses to prove, I'll put that in quotes, to prove his own contrary position. And the professor said, this is the part I've been tempted to do, the professor said, do you have a dictionary? And he said, uh, yeah, sure, why? Well, here. He gave him the dictionary, and he... And he goes looking through it, and he flips the letter B, flip, 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 finds the word he's looking for, and says it out loud, black. And then turns a little further in, get to the letter I, flip, 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 is, keeps flipping, all the way back to W, flip, 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 white. There, just proved it. The dictionary teaches that black is white. And he says incredulously, are you, are you nuts? The dictionary did not just teach that black is white. You can't use a dictionary like that. To which the professor responded, that's right, you can't. And the only reason I would even conceive of doing that is that I've already decided that black is white, and I'm going to go to the dictionary and figure out how to make it agree with me. And that's what you're doing with the Bible. That's what we do often with the Bible. We decide what God should be like. We don't make a statue with our hands. We decide in our minds what God should be like, and then let me find something somewhere that will prove it. That is idolatry. Just as effective, probably more effective, than making a little statue with a knife. 
It has limited God. It has told a lie about God. And it has placed him under my own control. I've decided what he is. I haven't humbly said, tell me, who are you? Let me get a little more personal and talk about myself. I desperately want a formula. And my formula goes like this. I come in and I work on certain hours in my study, and I study certain texts, and I understand what it says, and I write it out, and I'm done by 5 o'clock on Friday, and it's, I can remember it, and it's clear, and I can go home on Saturday and relax. And last night at 10.30, as I still don't understand what the sermon's about, I'm angry with God. Because he will not fit my formula. What I've decided as to how he should work what he should do with his word, with his servant, with his people, and when he should do it, on what schedule, he won't conform. And I'm angry about that. Because it makes my life uncomfortable. I want a God that fits in a box that I can nail down. I wouldn't dare make a picture of him, carve out something with my knife, but I've got one in my mind. I'm really bothered by God's refusal to submit to me. You are too. I don't know all of you in perfect detail, but I'd bet some cash that you are too. But He won't. He wants to remain the sovereign one who has always been, who makes, owns, and holds everything, who makes all the decisions and will call it all to account at the end. And he won't answer to me or you. And that's what we're trying to do when we make an idol and call it God. Not made with our hands, probably, but effective just the same. Take care that you're not confine God, limit Him, control Him, subject Him, even while attempting to exalt Him. Why should we be concerned to do that? That takes us to the second observation. This is an encouragement to pursue the Lord as He truly is. Second observation, God's steadfast love is available to those who worship Him rightly. God's steadfast love is available to those who worship Him rightly. And this shows up in the contrast between the second half of verse 9 and verse 10. God will actively do one thing or the other in these couple of verses. He will either visit the effects of iniquity upon or he will show steadfast love towards. This is not a passive God who's just kind of sitting back and letting the chips fall where they may. He is actively doing something here. Visiting iniquity, sin, punishment for iniquity, or blessing, 
pouring out. Consequence, form of discipline or punishment, something negative. Steadfast love, something tremendously positive. It's going to be one or the other. So you have to ask yourself, where, where do I stand in relation to this? Because one or the other will come. There's no, there's no third option. Where do you stand? I, I know part of where you stand. The question is, how committed are you to it? I, as I just said, I, I know that where I stand, and probably where most of us stand, is that we struggle with this continual desire to, to shape him and define him and hold him there. The question is, are you going to let go of that and say, you be God, God, I'll be a creature. That, let's work that way. Are you going to let go of that? One of these two is coming to you. What are the consequences going to be like? The negative consequences. Well, the text doesn't say. He's going to visit the iniquity on you and the third and fourth generation after you. I don't know what that is specifically. I can look ahead into Deuteronomy and see some of the sections of cursing and get some idea. But brothers and sisters, friends, we, we should at least be able to understand that's a negative and that's undesirable. You want to avoid that. I think, though, well, it doesn't specify what the negative consequences is. It's perhaps even more compelling to look at the positive consequence that will be missed. This comes in verse 10. On one side of the ledger, you get visit with iniquity. On the other side of the ledger, you get shown the steadfast love of the Lord. Think about that. That is a marvelous reality. The steadfast love of the Lord. It's translating a particular word in Hebrew that's notoriously difficult to translate. Whatever your translations be, it might say something like, like mercy or um, abiding love. Different words are used to translate that because it's really hard to get at what the word means. It essentially means all kinds of plentiful blessing and grace and mercy and kindness and love poured on you in a, in a committed way, steadfast. It's not passing. It's drilling into your heart and filling you up on the inside with a profound, wide, long, high, deep goodness. From God. It's the thing that every human soul cries for. It doesn't always go, as I said, it doesn't always go by the word love. Sometimes it goes by joy or mercy or peace or satisfaction or significance. Those are some of the words we attach to this concept that we're looking for. But all of them, everything that's good, comes out of this steadfast love of God. And every single person on the planet has at least tasted it because of the fact that he made this place and his fingerprints are still on it. Even though we've severely marred it in our sin, his fingerprints, he's left evidence of his goodness. So everybody's tasted it and once more, you were made for it. 
promises something amazing. The tragedy that verse 9 misses is the amazing promise in verse 10. I will show this to you. Steadfast love poured out. Upon whom? Those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now it reaches out to all the commandments. It's plural. But it's particularly tied to this one. After all, it's stuck on the end of the second commandment as encouragement for us to keep this one. He will pour out His steadfast love on those who love Him and keep His commandment. Love Him. You can't love a statue. It's metal or wood. Ivory. Who love Him. Isn't it remarkable how the law so consistently is going after the heart? Who love Him. He's jealous that He be first. Who love Him. And keep His commandments. He wants a worship of Him that is from the heart. A worship of Him that matches truth according to what He actually is, not according to what I've made Him to be or limited Him to be. It's what He's after from you. A heartfelt, genuine worship in spirit and in truth. How are we to do that? One way has been prescribed for us. We are indeed commanded to love, worship, and obey one particular image. Which one? What are we to raise our eyes towards to see and to bow down and to serve? An image not made by human hands, but the one who made everything, for whom all things are made in the heavens and the earth and the seas, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who, if you see him, you see the Father, because in him dwells bodily the fullness of deity. There is one God-made image that does not limit Him, confine Him, restrict Him, and submit Him to our control. And that image we are to bow down to. The radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His being. The one who nearly quotes verse 10, presenting it as if it comes right out of his own mouth. And he says in John 14, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and show myself to him. You hear all the connections there? I will show myself to him. I will love him. And my Father will love him. Who? The one who loves me and keeps my commandments. Be 
Jesus is the single accurate image of the invisible God, not made by human hands, not a distorted image, not subject to our control, but God come in flesh to be seen, to be worshipped, who will come again in flesh to be seen and worshipped bodily forever and ever and ever. Let all God's angels worship Him. Let all God's people worship Him, for He laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of His hands. In other words, worship Jesus. The second commandment is not only a prohibition against worshiping man-made images of God, it is an exhortation to worship the God-made image of God, Jesus the Christ. And as we come to Him, submitted to Him, not attempting to lord ourselves over Him and tell Him who He is and how He should act, but submitted to Him, we come to Him. We come to Him at His cross where He shows us the attributes of God in living color. As you come to Him there, He comes to live inside of you, working a change in you, freeing you from the natural human bent to want to subject God he frees you from that and gives you faith and the ability to trust Him and let Him be who He is. Work with you as He will. The only hope to keep the second commandment is to come to Jesus. The one who you're commanded to worship and the one who gives you power to stop worshiping everything else, including yourself. The steadfast love of the Lord is available to you in Jesus. To those who love Him and keep His commandments by faith. By faith in the one that the whole law is pointing to. The end, Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I don't know if your problem is that, that you've picked an attribute of God and made that all that He is. If you go hunting through passages looking to make your own God, or if you're like me, just really bothered that He won't obey you. I'm not, I'm not sure which, which one of those is primarily your problem, but the solution to it is not, don't do that anymore. The solution to it is, worship the true image, Jesus. And ask Him, cry out to Him for grace that will change you and liberate you from all the other problems that you have. Take care that you not seek to limit and control Him, but turn to Jesus and trust Him, and thereby keep the second commandment. Let me pray. Father, we need Your help in thinking all these things through. And I need Your help in particular in applying what this means for me and my place in day and age. Would you give me grace, finding me in Jesus? Would you give me grace 
to free me from my desire to control you. Would you give my brothers and sisters here grace, finding them in Jesus as worshipers of the true image. Give them grace to come humbly to you to find out who you really are. To be comfortable with whatever they find, trusting you. And, and Father, would you be at work in those here who don't know you and give them grace to open their eyes, draw them to Jesus, the only one who can enable them to love you and keep your commandments, the one in whom your love is poured out on them. We need you to do this work, Father, Son, and Spirit. Without it, we are lost. Come and enable us to keep your commandments. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.